0: Open your Bibles to a Romans chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3. And for those of you that have been with us, we're in a series walking through the New Testament letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church. In Rome, And uh, today we're going to cover chapter 3 and we're going to cover a little tiny slice of chapter 4. Um, but as we do this, I just want to share a few things that we know about the Roman church. First of all, we know because of reading the book of Acts that the church at Rome had existed before the Apostle Paul wrote them. So they had been going for quite a while. They were still a bit of a fledgling church, but they had some history before he writes. We also know that the church in Rome at the very beginning was made up of both Jewish and Jewish and non-Jewish Jesus followers. So there were people that had a Greek Hellenistic background. Then there were people that also had this very Jewish Hebrew background. And all of them together are coming together to form this new church. They're making this new church in Rome. But at one point, the Roman Empire, a Roman emperor, Claudius, expels all of the Jewish individuals out of the city of Rome. He said, if you're Jewish in heritage, if that's your ethnicity, you can no longer live in the city of Rome. And that included the Jesus, um, Jesus following Jewish people that were there. And so they all leave. So like half the church takes off. You can imagine that happening here. Imagine we just said, okay, everybody on this half over, you get to stay. Everyone here, you're gone. You don't don't get to be a part of this. Except that about five years later, there was another decree and you all were allowed to come back to the church. The, the problem was these people had really shaped a different church during that time. So when the Jewish individuals returned to Rome and they returned to their church, the church had changed dramatically. All of the, the customs and the preferences had been shifted towards this other half that had been remained. So imagine coming back to this. These Jewish Jesus' followers returned, and they found a church that had pretty much ditched any connection to Jewish customs or practices. And so there was this tension that now existed. What is this church? What are we going to be? Who are we going to be? And the church at Rome was just trying to get established and built up, and now it's being divided. And as always is the case, when people start getting divided, it becomes an exercise in missing the point, right? If you start fighting about these little things, then you miss the overall point. And so they begin to lose sight of their own faith in the process. They start disagreeing about how to follow Jesus. There's debates about the Sabbath. There's debates about kosher food. There's debates about circumcision. You can imagine how many things they would be debating if you were divided for five years and then you came back together. And so we have these two different groups, but not only that, when you start reading the first few chapters of Romans, you also realize that they're a divisive force in culture. They're actually dividing the culture around them. Rather than being a light, rather than being a joy, rather than being people who bring peace to the city, they bring accusation. And worst of all, they bring judgment. They are judgmental Christians. Which, by the way, that seems to be a stereotype Christians get sometimes, right? Judgmental Christians. Some people say that's actually redundant, right? Like they go hand in hand. I've certainly had my share of of people saying Christians are judgmental. And I've seen my fair share of Christians being judgmental. But let me just share this with you. It is not a Christian thing. Being judgmental, it turns out, is a human thing. Humans judge other humans, especially other humans who aren't like themselves, or they have different ideas, or they have different ways of doing things. Judgment is a human thing. Let me just give you an example. Um, recently, I've been riding my bike a lot to get into shape, and so there's a few routes that I, I do more consistently than others. And one of them is Cornell Road, going west, past Bethany Boulevard, Bethany Road. And, uh, and so um, one day recently, I was riding in the afternoon, and I'm going past the Krispy Kreme That's on Cornell and I'm riding my bike along and I notice that the line is like out the back of the driveway and I here I am like I'm exercising and I am fit and I'm taking care of my body and then there are all of these people who are harming their bodies. And they're disgusting, and they're lazy, and they're undisciplined, and they're in the line of the Krispy Kreme. And I'm riding by, and I'm like, you people should be on your bikes just like me. You gotta take care of your bodies, right? Like I just, I'm like judging them in my heart, and I'm not, I'm confessing this to you. I was like judging, I felt so proud of myself. Like, look at me on my bike while you eat donuts. Then I noticed the red sign was on in the window, which means that there are fresh, ready now, hot donuts. And how do I know that? Because I've been to Krispy Kreme like a thousand times in my life, right? (laughs) So I noticed that. I'm like, well, there's fresh donuts. And then I'm riding, I'm like, do you realize why you know that, Brad? So I'm riding my bike now and I'm thinking, how judgmental can we be, right? The moment we feel good about ourselves or the moment we're in a spot where we're comfortable, we start looking at others and we start judging where they are. I feel good about where I am. Look at you people. Look at you and who you are. Because judgment is a human thing. So in chapter 2 of Romans, we looked at it last week, Paul says this might be a human thing. It might be very human for us to look at others and judge. But it is not a Jesus thing. It is not a Jesus thing to judge others. And so we saw this in verse 1. I want to read it again. There's no mincing words here. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Who are you to judge? He says, who are you to judge? So then as we move to chapter three, Paul really doubles down on how the law, or how the Old Testament, or the rules and the regulations that are associated with faith, how they were never intended to make us feel or to be what he calls "justified. And "justified" is really a legal term that Paul is using that is like someone declaring you right or righteous. It's somebody saying that we've observed your life, we've, we've examined you, we've seen the things you, you do and the things you don't do. And we've determined that you are right. You are doing things the right way. But that's more than just a legal pronouncement. It's one thing for me to say you're right or or you're justified. But when you start to experience that, you will feel certain things when you're justified. It has an impact on your sense of identity, and so in chapter 3, he's addressing this reality of being pronounced justified, and then he quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and says this, he mashes them up in verse 10 of Romans 3, and he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And you go, well, Why is he being so negative? Well, he's reinforcing that there's nothing that any of us can do to be good enough. That's the old way. That's what religion was all about. And Jesus is doing something completely new. We talked about that last week. Jesus is developing something beautiful and wonderful. It kind of reminds me of a difference between my wife and I. Um, Sherry and I, we address weeds very differently. Anyone ever do some weeding at your house? You ever dive into that? For me, I have two methods. One is power tools. I love power tools. They call it a weed whacker for a reason, right? And so I see weeds and I just mow them down, you know, use all the power tools you can. My other method I call scorched earth. It's illegal in 49 states, but it works, right? Like, just kidding, I don't do that. But I use the weed whacker most of the time. Sherry is a true Oregonian. When it's time to weed, Sherry goes out, and very patiently, with a fork and a knife, she'll sit on the ground, and she slowly removes every single weed, including the root, because she knows, growing up in Oregon, that the Oregon rain, if you don't get the root, it'll come back in just a matter of days, well, the Apostle Paul here, when it comes to human justification and, and legalism and religiosity and, and, and the, the judgment that's characteristic of these people, he says in order for this new thing to be done, we can't simply prune it back. You can't just get the power trimmer out and, and think this is going to go away. It has to be eradicated. And that's what he's doing in Romans chapter 3. He continues on and he's talking about all of these ideas and eventually he leads us to this very simple Iconic but often misread verse in Romans chapter three. The problem with this is that most of us don't actually listen to all of what's being said here. Romans 3.23, he says this, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received by faith. This is a a guided missile aimed at the heart of humanity. There is no distinction. We're all broken. We all fall short. We all find ourselves every now and then pulling into the Krispy Kreme driveway, if you know what I mean. We all do this, right? But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, You're all bad. He then immediately turns and says, But you're also justified. You're justified. It's just not how you thought you were justified. You thought it was you. You thought it was what you did. But it's actually about what God is doing and has done. And so that legal thing that I was talking about earlier, basically Paul's saying God did that for you by his grace. He said, no, you're good. We're good. And that feeling I talked about, we should still be getting that. When the creator of the universe looks at your life and says, no, like you're good, I love you, you're covered. When he does that, that should do something inside of us. We get that feeling, but it's not because we proved somebody wrong or we proved ourselves right or because of something that we've done. It's not our accolades or our accomplishments. It's because our father in heaven has said these things. That's what makes us good. It's, it's like anytime. Somebody outside of you, someone more powerful than you, says something to you that is, that is beautiful or good or encouraging, it, you have a response to that. It's a new kind of feeling that you get. I mean, how many times have you ever been validated by somebody, a boss or a teacher, professor, somebody comes along and they acknowledge you, and then there's that sense of, wow, I just got recognized. I got acknowledged in this, right? Have you ever noticed how that makes you feel? Maybe you're being criticized by other people. Maybe you don't feel that great about yourself in the moment. But now somebody validates you that has authority over you. And now there's this sense of, wow, even in the middle of my chaos, there's confidence. Imagine that on an exponentially greater, more grand scale. That's what Paul is talking about. You are justified. But it's not because you tried hard enough. Because God just said you are. He did this for you. So then the question would be for all of us, well, then how do I experience this? How do I actually encounter this? And we come to the end of chapter 3, and this is what we read. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Your justification, this pronouncement, this feeling that you get of being okay. All of this comes through faith. Now, I know some of you probably sit back and you go, okay, this is great, but faith is a really ethereal term. Like, how do you define this? How do you pin this down? What exactly is faith? Like, how does something so concrete as being justified come through something as, as nebulous as, as faith? How do, you, how do you chase it with something that's that squishy? Like, how do you define it? You might ask that, but then if you go into chapter 4, Paul continues, and he explains with this little sliver that we're going to close with today. In verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness." So Paul says, listen, if you want to look at a faith that justifies, faith that lets you know and makes you feel that all is well, well then look at Abraham. Abraham is the example. But what Abraham had was not a list of good behaviors. What Abraham received from God, it wasn't because he'd earned by obeying a list of do's and don'ts. And this represents a major fundamental shift in our thinking as people. The way that Paul describes his faith and the way that Abraham's faith is described in other places in the Bible, it's completely unique. And there's a distinction made here, and the way it's phrased here points to why so many people think they've got it when they really don't. See, normally, when people talk about faith, They're referring to fundamental ideas that they hold to be true. That's what we think about when we think about faith. Like we believe in God. We believe in God. We say that. What we're saying is that we believe that God exists. We recognize his works and what he's done and what he's doing in the world. And so we say, I believe in God. And essentially that's saying, I believe there's a God and I believe he's powerful. And, and, that. and you may even say, I believe that God is expressed in the Bible and in the person of Jesus. You can say those things. But something gets said about Abraham, Abraham here that's revolutionary. Paul doesn't say that Abraham believed in God. He says Abraham believed God. Do you hear the difference in this? Certainly he believed in God, but that's not the point. It's not where he got his reputation as a great man of faith, and it's not how he experienced justification. Abraham actually believed God. Do you understand the difference in this? What made him a great man of faith wasn't believing in, it was actually believing. And that distinction is critical. In fact, I think this distinction explains a malfunction in our own faith experience and the reason we don't experience the kind of justification that actually makes us people who have joy and makes us people who have peace in the middle of circumstances, makes us people who are, who are more, more filled with love and expressing it to others, less judgmental. If I believe in God, all I'm doing is acknowledging that he's real. He's there. But if you, if you believe God, that's different. So I can believe in all sorts of things and recognize their connection to the present reality. But actually believing brings a component that's missing in most of our lives. Um, if you believe in me, if I said I want you to believe in me, all you have to do is look at me on the stage and go, I'm pretty sure he's real. Right? You you can make observations. You can state facts. You can say, I see the effects of Brad. I see the results of his work. I know he exists. And so I've actually seen him. Maybe at a distance. Some of you back in the corners, you've seen me at a distance. But you go, I'm pretty sure that guy up there is real. Brad Williams is a real person, right? But if I ask you to believe me, it means something completely different, doesn't it? To say you believe me assumes something. It assumes that I've told you something. I've spoken something to you. It means I've said something and you don't have to decide whether or not I'm real. You have to decide whether or not to trust me. That's the decision. You have to decide whether or not to have faith in what I've said. So believing God, this phrase around Abraham, it assumes that you and God have interacted, that he's spoken things over you, that God has said things that are true about you, that God has given messages to you. And what Abraham is known for is not his ideas about God. It isn't his theological constructs. It's his trust in what God told him. That's what made him a great man of faith. Wasn't his obedience to rules and regulations. It was the fact that he didn't think God was lying when he spoke. And so when he ran into circumstances, when he bumped up to circumstances that looked like they contradicted the things that God had promised him, he kept believing God. When he ran into people who said things to him and doubted the things that that God had told him, he didn't listen to what they were saying. He continued to believe God. Even his own internal alarms, when they went off and he began to worry about God's timeline, he still believed the things that God had said to be true. A decision had to be made. Will I believe what these circumstances or what these people or what this timing says, or will I simply believe God? Will I choose to trust God? Abraham believed God. So what has God spoken to you? What has God spoken to you? Can I share a few? He says you're loved. He says you're loved unconditionally by him. He says it. He says you're forgiven. That there's grace to cover your brokenness you're forgiven. He says you're okay. He says the relationship between you and him, it's been restored and and it's all good. He says that. You don't have to white knuckle it. That's what he says to you. But most importantly, you know what he says? You're justified. You're justified. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. And when you realize this, when you let the reality of God, the God of the universe telling you you're justified. That is more than just some theological or legal proclamation. That is a feeling that overwhelms you and shapes you. It's a gift that Paul says you receive. Abraham, believe God, and my prayer is that we would too. Because here's what I've noticed about myself, and I don't know if this is true about you, When I believe, when I believe God and what he's spoken to me over me, and then I bump into those circumstances, I, like, let me just tell you this, when I mess up, when I break things, when I don't do things the right way, when I, fracture relationships in my life, when I do those things, it is really easy for me to beat myself up and for me to tell myself I don't measure up and I'm not good. And I can That negative stuff can, can cram into my brain. But that is not what God said for me to believe. Let me just say this. When I look at our world, sometimes I look at our world and things people say or things people are doing that I disagree with, it's so easy to become judgmental. But that's not what God told me to believe. When a situation starts to spin out of control, it's pretty easy to get stressed out. It's really easy for me to be cynical, but that's not what God said for me to believe. When I attempt to, to, to be justified through my own will, you know what it results in? Almost every time I become cynical, I get judgmental towards others, I condemn myself, there's stress. But when I experience true justification, when I just rest in the grace that God has justified me. That just does something different inside of me because it's no longer about me. I don't, have to, I don't have to bend things to go my way. I don't have to make sure that everybody agrees. I, I, I'm just going to listen to his voice and know what he has said about me and I'm going to live and lean into that. And all of those worries and all that negativity, it gets replaced It's almost like that moment when you realize like you've been justified and God loves you and he forgives you and and he's actually in control of the world and you're not. Like when you realize that, it's like the sun comes up in your world again, you know? It's like there's a brand new beautiful day and there's peace and there's joy and there's humble confidence and the way we move through the day, the way we move through our lives, it just becomes different when we are justified through faith and the grace of God. So I'm gonna invite Ron back out. He's gonna close us with a song today. And uh, I remember the first time I heard this song that he's gonna sing, and uh, it captures something. It captured a posture, and uh, it's a posture that I oftentimes see in Ron. I think Ron's gonna come back out and sing a song. I don't know, maybe he's not. I don't know where he's, where he's at, but he's coming out here. There he is, he's coming out. And uh, it captures, a, it captures a, a, a posture. I remember listening to it, this is a couple of years ago. You wrote this like in 2019, right? It's about when you released it, and uh, it kind of captures a lot of how Ron moves through his days. But it also captures how I believe we as believers, when we're justified, move through our days. It captures a sense of peace and a sense of seeing the world a particular way. And so, I just wanted Ron to share this with us and bless us with it. So, take it Thank away, you. brother.
1: Heart. Sun is always shining worries are distinct. Dancing and learning with tears of joy. You say you're different. I cannot agree. Cause this whole world, one day we'll go drifting out to sea. Come on, Lily. In my heart, the sun is always shining. Worries are dissing worlds away. I'm going to get somebody to come out and help me sing this song, right? Come on, Lily. Come on. You ready? Here we go. In my heart The sun is always shining shining. And worries are distant Worlds away Come on people stay here In my heart Ah. The sun is always always shining Worries are the way Worlds away ah. Sometimes you feel down And that's alright Cause that's why we're here To lift you from the ground Whoa. is always shining, worries are distinct, Wor-
0: Not only does justification through faith make a difference in us, it makes us a different, a different kind of people. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me and I'll offer the benediction? May you be men and women who experience the freedom of knowing that God says we're all good. May you experience His love and His grace? And may you not just be a person of peace or a person of joy or a person of love, but may you deliver peace, may you deliver joy, may you deliver love everywhere you go. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys so much. Have an amazing day. We'll see you guys later.